Ah yes, the unmistakable sound of Thomas Mapfumo and the Black Sun Limited celebrating Zimbabwean independence in 1980. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Today's hip deep edition, Thomas Mapfumo Part 2, The Mugabe Years. The man they call the Lion of Zimbabwe is perhaps his country's most consequential popular musician, both for his sustained commercial success and for his deep engagement with Zimbabwean history. We pick up the Mapfumo story just after the swearing-in of Robert Mugabe as Zimbabwe's first prime minister. Mugabe evolved from the heroic leader of a popular liberation struggle into one of the most controversial, even reviled, leaders in modern African history. And through it all, Thomas Mapfumo has been there, singing the situation as it unfolded. Our principal guide on this musical journey through Zimbabwean history is Mose Chikowero, professor of African history at the University of California in Santa Barbara. The song we are hearing, Chaya Chirizeva, celebrates the return of normal life to Zimbabwe's rural areas. Thomas Mapfumo himself grew up on the land before coming to the city as a 10-year-old boy. Professor Chikowero says this movement between countryside and city was an important legacy of the Rhodesian colonial era. Zimbabwe was not exactly divided between the rural and the urban, even though the colonial design was to do just that. Uh, but people moved back and forth. Talking about Thomas, who actually was living uh, in the city uh, in the 1970s, that that's where musicians, professional musicians, of course, operate from. But their music uh, references the larger context of Zimbabwe, where they were born, how they grew up, uh, heading cattle, doing those kinds of things that any average boy does as he grows up. So the music itself does not have that raw urban divide. If anything, it actually references the mobilities uh, that characterize the labor migration between the rurals and uh, the urban centers. Popular musicians, many were actually saying the songs that won the Liberation War itself. They are continuing to produce, but maybe they have moved their gear up. It's no longer time to fight, but to build or to rebuild. So songs like uh, Mabasa, which means work, Chitima Chirisunungoko, the Freedom Train. These are kinds of metaphors after two decades of grueling fighting of destruction, of violence and hatred. The idea of uh, rebuilding or building a new post-colonial African uh, nation-state called for cooperative development. Uh, that's what defined the goal uh, of the struggle, the idea of cooperatives coming from both socialistic uh, ideologies but also the common historical communalistic ways of doing things in African uh, societies. Well, let's hear one of the Mapfumo songs Mose Chikowero mentioned, Mabasa, or Work, from 1983, with dueling guitars played by Emmanuel Gera and Joshua Dubey. 
Mapfumo celebrating Zimbabwean independence with a call to get back to work. Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide's hip deep retrospective on Thomas Mapfumo and the Mugabe years. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the New York Council for the Humanities, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Historian Mose Chikowero notes that from the start in Zimbabwe, there was a tension between the cooperative spirit expressed by popular artists and the priorities of the country's new leaders. There's a realization that where we have won the war, what do we do? We must go back to work, cooperate, to do things together. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough of that kind of spirit, especially at the level of uh, policy. There was no concerted effort to actually think about social transformation. That question was kind of pushed aside while people danced and politicians did things. Hmm. More on the things politicians did later on. But Mose is right in tune with Thomas when he says that leaders were failing to ask the big questions. For nearly a century, the Rhodesians had profoundly distorted African life on the Zimbabwean plateau, and there was a lot more to set right than simply changing the skin color of national politicians. Thomas is looking at people going back to the fields, Chiruzeva, Chawuya. The traditional life in the reserve is back. But of course, if you rethink the concept of the reserve, there are limits. This is where Africans had been shunted through uh, under colonial land uh, policies. And one of the agendas of the Liberation War was to give them back the land that they'd lost over the hundred years of colonial rule. So songs that celebrated life back in the reserve have that kind of limit. All right, Thomas Mapfumo's 1980 song, Rita, another ode to rural life at the end of the war. But when Thomas recorded this song, he was facing limits of his own. The singer had been jailed in 1979, and his release had come with a fateful condition that he and the Black Sun Limited perform at the political rally for the short-lived accommodationist government of Bishop Abel Muzorewa. There's much more about this controversial episode in part one of our Hip Deep Mapfumo series, The War Years, available, by the way, for streaming at afropop.org. But for now, suffice it to say that uh, many supporters of Robert Mugabe's ZANU-PF party had not forgotten what they saw as Thomas's transgression. Still a bitter memory for the artists today. People were victimizing the band and they were telling people that they shouldn't come to our concerts because we played for Bishop Zoewa, we were sellouts. 
We had uh, very difficult times. I mean, we used to play for very few people. People were being told lies by some jealous so-and-sos. So, well, we said, it doesn't matter. We'll still play our music and the language is not going to change. We played revolutionary songs. We never stopped. And then people started realizing that these guys, they were the only guys who stood up, I mean, during the struggle. And still today, they're still doing the same thing. They've never changed. And then people now started coming back. debate on whether or not Thomas sold out. Mose Chikawero. And that really affected him. That affected many people who had really taken Thomas' music to be some kind of icon and optic into things. One thing that really allowed Thomas to survive was consistency. I don't personally know any song that he actually performed celebrating either Mzorewa or Ian Smith in the Zimbabwe Rhodesia regime. So even though many people in ZANU were kind of sold on the idea that Thomas had uh, sold out, I think that consistency, singing the very same songs that had defined him during the 1970s, and also his new discography of the 1980s celebrating uh, independence, and charting the popular hopes, that I think is what really continued to define him. Thomas Mapfumo and the Black Sun Limited with Jonas Itole on lead guitar recorded at the Queen's Garden Hotel during Afropop's first visit to Zimbabwe. One of Thomas Mapfumo's most memorable songs from the early 80s was anything but a celebration. Rather, it was a dark warning about subversive forces out to undermine the newly independent Zimbabwean state. The song is Nyokamsangu, or Snake in the Forest. Here's how Thomas described the song when we first met him in Harare in January 1988, five years after he wrote the song. Nyoka is a snake. Nyoka msango, snake in the grass or snake in the forest. Nyoka msango are the dissidents, where you find that people are fighting against their own people. This is now a common thing in Southern Africa, where we have the South African regime dominating the situation. Not only Zimbabwe, countries like uh, Mozambique, we have them in Angola. Poet Musa Zimunia remembers Nyokam Songo well. The Shona people would readily interpret the snake in the bush as an idiom expressing presence of the wily treacherous. This idiom comes straight out of the liberation struggle, especially when he goes, mothers, fathers, take your exes take your spears, there's a snake in the bush. 
Hey mothers, sisters, brothers, fathers and sons, there are snakes in the forest, so they must be eliminated. Thomas refers to South African meddlers in Zimbabwe, and certainly they were present, but there were also Zimbabwean dissidents, particularly in the western province of Matabele land, home to the country's minority Ndebele ethnic group and power base of the Zapu political party. Zapu's leader, Joshua Nkomo, had contested Mugabe in the election and lost. Here's Musa Zimunia. The problem with the Matabellian crisis is now, when we look back, the common people didn't actually know what was going on. And before that, what people don't understand is how the problem began. It was very simple. Komo was given the Home Affairs Ministry, and he said, no, I prefer the presidency. And if I don't get that presidency, then I, I'm not going along. And then after that, there were signals. They were hoarding caches, arms around Harare, you know, Hawaii itself, Beru. The people of this country know about that. Well, Nkomo describes his split with Mugabe somewhat differently, but it was a split. And what people did not know, thanks to a government-enforced news blackout, is that Mugabe was unleashing snakes of his own in Matabele land, a brutal campaign of violence that would take the lives of some 20,000 people, most of them ordinary Ndebele citizens. Mugabe called this Gukuru Hundi, literally separating the wheat from the chaff. Chilling. The Matabele land crisis remains a dark stain on the otherwise hopeful early years of Zimbabwe. Musa says Thomas's song, stern as it was, was really aimed at encouraging patriotism and unity, not a bloody massacre. Historian Mose Chikowero. Nyokam Sango itself, in the context of early post-war, you are talking about things controlled by politicians who have a control over the media, especially in the western Zimbabwe. People did not actually travel from one point to the next without official clearance. So what Thomas knew, what other Zimbabweans knew, especially the violent government response to the problem, which I think was a real problem of dissidents, there is a common understanding that government overextended its hand for political purposes to actually touch on the civilian population. As a Shona singer championing Shona culture, Thomas was viewed with understandable suspicion in Matabele land at the time. As for this particular song, Nyukam Songo, Thomas said this in a more recent interview. That song was not actually sung for the people of Matabele. The song that was sung for the people of Matabele was uh, Nyarai. was a sort of, I mean, bring the people together. I mean, make them see reality. It does mean that we hated the people from Matebele. They are our people. We have actually to teach them what unity is all about. That's how that song came about.
Narai means be ashamed of yourself. The nation has just emerged from violent confrontation. People had these hopes that, well, now we're going to join hands and do our things together the best way we know how. The 1980s in Southern Africa were really a troubled time with all those destabilization programs by the apartheid regime in South Africa. All these forces actually fed into the local situation in Zimbabwe with uh, the talk of dissidents, uh, especially in the western parts of the country. That context, I think, is what Thomas captures. Something else Thomas captures in Yarai is raucous support for Robert Mugabe as a leader. Because I thought he was a freedom fighter, a man who spent all those years in exile and trying to bring freedom to this country. We all thought he was a messiah, a savior. And Thomas was rewarded for his enthusiasm, performing at state functions and galas. But it did not take long before he began to tamper his message with hints of dissatisfaction about the way things were going. He played at Congress. There was a Zanupiev Congress, big one, done at Borodil Park, 1984. And that's when he begins to change. He sang Congress. It's like a fairy tale of all the animals going to Congress, even the crocodiles and even snakes, and, you know. But it's very satirical. They were dancing to it. They're too drunk with their own power to worry about it. <laughs> I think Zimonia is correct in that reading of Congress. But again, I don't think there's one dimension to the song. I think it's in the same kind of train of thought and perception as Mabasa. He's really celebrating the model of development that is cooperative. The idea of unity is one that even the ZANU Congress, where he performed that song, uh, also promoted. But of course, it's a Congress. Everyone is there, everyone has to come, everyone is welcome. I mean, it was a song to actually remind these people that if this Congress was genuine, they have to be genuine themselves. They have to show that they want to work for the people rather than work for themselves, for their stomachs. Thomas noted a certain arrogance among Zanu's freedom fighters turned politicians, arrogance that discouraged dialogue. When these people came back from war, they were like little gods. They wanted to be worshipped. And this is how the people were defrauded a lot of money by these people because they feared them. When you are in fear, someone can almost do anything with you. Did you go to Mozambique? Were you in uh, Chimoy? 
you go to war yourself. You have got nothing to say. You don't talk to me like that. Mugabe's government had made early progress on education and health care, and even on some limited land resettlement. Still, poverty and hardship persisted in Zimbabwe, an inconvenient reality that Thomas noted in his 1987 song, Namo, or Problems. The moment all Zimbabweans remember came a year later, in 1988, when Thomas threw off the kid gloves and made a direct attack on the Mugabe regime with his landmark song, Corruption. was inspired when newspaper reporter Jeffrey Nyarota revealed that government ministers were using privileges to buy and sell Mercedes-Benzes on the black market. Government subsidized industries producing those vehicles. They get them, they resell them at personal profits. So you're looking at a class of people who should actually be leading social and economic transformation. You see the emergence of this wide divide between the new rich and the have-nots. When we supported the struggle, we all thought there was going to be some light at the end of the tunnel. People in top posts stealing money. They said they were actually going to look after the poor people. There was going to be free education, free medical aid, and is there any free education in this country? And free medical aid. That alone says volumes. Corruption was a sensation, the biggest selling song Thomas had recorded since independence in 1980. As far as I know, it wasn't officially banned by anyone. It was played on the radio. There are some people who'd like to play it still. 
But uh, some people fear to play, I mean, such music. If, I mean, you are working for the government, you might find yourself out of employment. That's how Mugabe-era censorship works. No public notice, no official word, just a quiet message behind the scenes, and the song in question is no longer heard. It's worth noting that Thomas chose to sing Corruption in English. He wanted to be heard beyond the Shuna community, and he was. For one thing, this song did a lot to improve Thomas's reputation with the Ndebele Zimbabweans. Well, they actually found out that this band was not a ZANPF band. <laughs> so they actually started believing us. They said, oh, these are real freedom fighters because they are not part and parcel of the government. Thank you. Thomas called his music Chimuranga, a term with deep resonance in Shona military history. Corruption reinforced his identity as a political singer, and he was. But if you really examine his music over the years, you find there is a deeper message, not about politics, but culture. Thomas spoke about this the very first time we met him in Harare in 1988. Our culture was stolen. This country is a holy place. So many things happen here, mysterious things. We are the owners of this country. We exactly know what our people want and how we should live. If you are white and you would like to live in Zimbabwe, you're welcome. All you have to do is live like a Zimbabwean. That is all. Living like a Zimbabwean means honoring ancestors and remembering their old African ways. But it doesn't mean rejecting modernity. Thomas is a fan of fancy cars, soccer teams, vampire films, and professional wrestling. And it doesn't mean rejecting Christianity either. He sees no contradiction between beliefs in Jesus Christ and ancestral spirits. In the 1980s, Thomas found a new way to convey this message. His guitarist had long imitated the sound of the sacred mbira, that's the wood and iron thumb piano used in the ancient spirit possession ceremonies of the Shona people. Now he incorporated the instrument within his band, as heard so beautifully in this recording Afropop Worldwide made of the Black Sun Limited at SOB's in New York City in 1991. <laughs>
This is really one of the quintessential musical instruments in Zimbabwe, which really represented everything that was wrong with African cultures in the eyes of European settlers and missionaries. The Mbira had taken a serious buffeting right from the late 1800s through the decades. This is one instrument that really was a metaphor in the suppression of indigenous, not just music, but cultures, ways of knowing, ways of doing things, indigenous knowledges. So with independence, that's a moment, I think, for Africans to reimagine what it meant to be an African again, a moment for cultural restoration. If you look at radio and popular perceptions, Rethinking what Mbira means in Zimbabwean cultures was kind of left in the hands mainly of conscious musicians. If you ask Zimbabwe's champions of indigenous music, not just Thomas, how much real support they have enjoyed from state radio and television, you will hear a sad story. Zimbabwe's leaders have never brought about the re-evaluation of ancestral culture that Thomas and many others yearn for. Which is not surprising because, well, what are we talking about? We're talking about the children, the converts of the missionaries. Coming up, the struggles of the 1990s, AIDS, radio wars, and the problem of land reform as we continue with Thomas Mapfumo and the Mugabe years. You can read our complete interview with Mose Chikowero and find out much more about Thomas Mapfumo on our website, afropop.org. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI. Public Radio International. The early 90s was a period of phenomenal productivity for Thomas Mapfumo and the Blacks Unlimited. Albums like Corruption, Chamu Norwa, Chimurenga Masterpiece and Hondo raised hairs on the backs of Zimbabwean fans and a growing international audience as well. Here's Musa Zimunia. You only have to listen to Chamu Norwa. Chamu Norwa has got some of the most powerful channel lyrics. In fact, the translations don't do the justice because he is using very oblique Shona registers. Thomas Mapfumo is capable of composing the most powerful poetry that you can imagine. It's poetry and philosophy at once. Powerful and prophetic. Chamu Norwa, why do you fight? In the newspapers, you scandalize me. You have slapped the line with your bare hands. You provoked me while I lay asleep. You may rule as I speak now, but monsters are growing out of the land. Thorns are growing out of this soil. I'm a 
1990s came as a new era. The body politic was a diseased body. People who had been affected by the war had not really been uh, taken into account in terms of policy making. The war veterans who had uh, left school, people who had uh, left their families to go and fight to free the country, came back and there was no comprehensive program to actually reintegrate them, not just economically but also culturally, because war affects people psychologically. In Zimbabwean cultures, you don't kill a person. If you kill a person in the context of war, there should be cultural processes to cleanse that individual for his own good and for society's good. A lot of the fighters' bones had continued to lie in the forests. There were some programs to rebury the fallen heroes, but not enough of that was actually done. The concept of a diseased body politic kind of summarizes what was happening. This is a troubled time. And part of that trouble was literally a disease. AIDS was quietly ravaging Zimbabwe. Thomas's 1992 song, Mukondombera, sounds a clear warning about AIDS and how it was spreading. In those years, governments around the world were awakening to the threat, some more quickly than others. Zimbabwe was slow to respond, but Thomas was way out in front with this song, and soon the message would become personal. In the coming decade, Thomas would lose many beloved and brilliant musicians to AIDS. Professor Chikowero, why the Zimbabwean government was so slow to warn people about HIV-AIDS. I don't know if the short answer is because this tended to be the disease of the poor. Thomas say in Kondombera, which government could have used to really raise awareness and educate people? Paul Matawire and a few others actually also sang songs about the disease in very straightforward ways. So the government was slow. The disease and the sickness became stigmatized, and so nobody wanted to talk about it. Thomas was full of warnings, like his advice to the young and the poor to avoid being used by politicians. That was the message of his 1991 song, Jojo. In politics, a lot of people have died fighting for other people's names, those who are in the top. Politics is dirty. For those who did not go to school and who are just ordinary people, I think the right thing for them is to just keep away from such people. They are being used by politicians to carry their evil deeds. If a political opponent is to be killed, they are the very same people who are sent to kill. Poor people die for leaders. People who are educated have been killed because of politics. So Georgia, keep away from politics. 
Kwajo, I think, is a commentary on the new politics, a politics that kills instead of politics that solve problems. And of course, this becomes a key theme in Mapfumo's songs. The old colonial masters, they've been chased out of town, but their shoes, they remain. The new rulers don't do things in ways that are vastly different. is angered. Thomas Mapfumo sings about the dangers of abandoning traditional culture in his 1991 song Magariro. With his stubborn loyalty to Zimbabwean roots and his tough politics, Thomas began to feel the chill from Zimbabwean broadcast media. If you look back at the history of radio, not just in Zimbabwe but uh, in the region, you're looking at uh, technology that was founded on the premise that you need to control the minds of the colonized. If you look at the Second World War, African loyalty cannot be banged on by the British colonizers. So you use this powerful instrument to talk to Africans to make them loyal subjects of empire. Colonial-era radio's messages became more persuasive when sweetened with African music and voices. So there were Africans who worked for radio in the 1950s, and some of these become key in a nationalist or guerrilla appropriation of this instrument to subvert the state and actually take their skills into exile where they started broadcasting across the region the message of African self-liberation. So throughout the decades, you see radio is not really changing. It remains a key technology of state-making, capturing and retaining power. Radio becomes a tool to really bring people into line, especially musicians. Few public figures in Zimbabwe have endured more verbal abuse from Thomas Mapfumo than radio DJs. The DJs are the worst. And when they go into those studios, you know what happens? He plays a lot of American music because he's interested in that music himself. He's not there to promote the music of this country. He's doing what pleases him. In 1999 and 2000, Zimbabwe would make news around the world for the violent seizure of white-owned commercial farms by so-called war veterans. Well, somewhere, somewhere not. But the invaders had won the backing of President Mugabe. Ever since, Mugabe has staked his legacy on an aggressive, unlawful approach to reclaiming land. 
the history of the land issue in Zimbabwe is deep and contentious. For Mose Chikowero, it is also personal. Land itself is really the text of Zimbabwean history since the late 1800s. Many people ask me, uh, so where do you come from? They want to hear me say Mondoro. That's a huge reserve that was created when uh, white settlers displaced Africans, including uh, my own family, this daughter of the British Prime Minister around the Second World War. She comes and claims this huge expanse of land where people had uh, made their lives for generations. She declares herself the Lord, either you work for me or you live. When you leave, you're going to the wastelands called reserves, where you are basically just reserved labor, so that you have to, again, go to look for tax money. You can't raise it in the reserve. What do you do? Go to the mine compound or go to the urban location, where you don't own anything, but just work as an ultra-cheap laborer. We were very oppressed by the white regime. We were not looked upon as people. And yet we were the owners of this land, the natives of this country. The popular euphoria that you see in Thomas Mapfumos and others' music and independence is referencing land. We are going back to the land. But now you see in songs like Mighty Kurima Muviri, what are you doing about it now? This has been uh, a decade. We are still living in the reserve. So land remains uh, a hot issue one of those unreformed structures in the inherited neo-colonial economy. The British had promised money at independence to pay off the white farmers. Very little, if anything, had actually come. So this is a government that is broke, really, that is dependent on international charity. You're also looking at economic structural adjustment programs, those really torture policies uh, that destroyed and reversed some of the gains in the 1980s, that reduced further the government's capacity to do anything about land. So you are slowly but surely moving to a situation where things are going to explode. In this 1991 song, Maiti Kurima Hamubvire, Thomas is taunting Zimbabwe's leaders for having done nothing about the land issue. You said farming was easy, he sings. Eight years after that song came out, the government finally took action. But in Thomas's view, it was rash and foolish, and he responded with a song called Marimanzara. You have farmed or harvested hunger. I spoke to this journalist from the Herald who was uh, uh, asking me about this land issue. 
the war veterans are graving the land and uh, he said to me this is what happened a long time ago when the whites came into our country they stole our land and uh, they didn't even pay a penny for that land i said those whites who stole your land they're a long time gone they're not the same i mean white people who stole your land they're just like you and me they are zimbabweans they were born there if they can utilize the land for us to feed the rest of Zimbabwe, give them the land. We are not just there to grab the land when some of our people don't even know what agriculture is all about. What will happen in the future? That means we are inviting hunger into Zimbabwe. revolution, when you sweep away any kind of system, you're bound to suffer shocks. And one of those shocks, of course, is hunger. But uh, I think it will be important to reflect on the place of the white commercial farmers in Zimbabwe's food production processes. The bulk of the food that was eaten, that was sold uh, in Zimbabwe, did not come from the farms, but from the communal areas, the very same reserves where Africans were able to make life and make home over the decades. Even so, rendering so many farms inoperable did create hunger. First, for the many African workers who had earned their livelihoods there. And beyond that, it further weakened a failing economy and contributed to some of the most extreme inflation the world has ever seen. Things were actually pretty bad in that country. Uh, there was a song called uh, Mamvemve. Mamvemve means uh, tatas, right? That country is in tatters now. There is no rule of law. And um, a lot of people who would want I mean, to live in peace are leaving that country as quickly as possible. to London, Johannesburg, New York. What we didn't know when we conducted this interview in 2000 was that Thomas himself was making plans to move his family to, of all places, Eugene, Oregon. This was the start of his own long process of exile. The politics of the moment were becoming extreme in Zimbabwe. 
Armed gangs were invading white-owned farms at the government's direction. Mugabe painted the campaign as a matter of racial justice, but many black farm workers were killed and injured during these invasions. And there was little transparency to the land redistribution. A fierce debate as to what all this accomplished continues today. Those people were actually directed by the president himself to go and invade those farms. That's because people uh, voted no against uh, the ZAN-PF prepared constitution. People didn't like that. They want a constitution by the people. So, well, two of my songs were actually banned from being played on the radio. That actually didn't bother me because I've been with this thing for too long now. I remember when they were in the bush, I was supporting them through my music. They liked me, talked about me as a hero. And today, I'm like a villain now, an enemy of the state. You are really looking at a long process where policy making and implementation are falling victim to a different kind of politics. You can draw this back to the era of corruption, where Mavomo sings corruption. So when Mamvemve and other songs come, it's no surprise to anyone that, well, this is uncomfortable music in the ears of the government. So the Mamvemve that he sings, I think, does not really just get limited to the effects of the land reform. It's a certain kind of politics that lead to mismanagement. When you draw the popular thing in the wrong way, of course, you're bound to cultivate hunger. In exile, Thomas has continued to record and release songs, and for a few years he returned to Zimbabwe for huge year-end concerts. But he faced harassment. Young man demanding to see his NUPF membership card, trumped-up legal charters, even the mysterious erasure of music he had recorded in a Harare studio. It's hurting my side of business. No radio station is gonna play my latest music. It's even worse than during the time of Smith. Thomas also faced merciless attacks in the Zimbabwean press. He was accused of abandoning the ideals of the liberation struggle. One public intellectual wrote that Thomas laid out problems very well, but then could only tell people to pray to God for a solution. Thomas responded in 2004 with an album called Rise Up. Its lead track, Kuvarira Mukati, has a gentle vibe, but its words deliver nothing short of a call to arms. We are saying, it's up to you, the people. You have to make a decision. Do you want this guy to destroy the country? Or do you want to do something about it? Are you going to stop this man? He doesn't want to let go of the power. He doesn't want to listen to anyone. It's up to us, the people, to make a decision. We must rise up and fight back. We need to fight back. This is somebody who has really raised his voice, who sings what he wants in the same way that Steve Biko wrote what he liked. And of course, when you do that, you have to stand up to the politics that don't entertain saying or writing or singing what you like. So it's that legacy of resistance, the legacy of Chiburenga music resistance. However, people look at resistance, what are you resisting? 
that might be subject to debate because that's bound to kind of change over time. Are you resisting a particular kind of personalized politics? Or are you still struggling for the common good? Historians are going to write that history differently. Thomas himself will be glad to be remembered as a fighter, whether or not you agree with what he has been fighting for. But more than that, he must be remembered as a person who made his countrymen think about their African heritage and where it fits into post-colonial reality. that hasn't really been asked. Yet it is the question that was actually asked by the colonial regime, by the missionaries, when they intervened into what it means to be African. They did what they could to re-engineer African being from the cultural front. It is one question that really defines what it means to be post-colonial African. So Mafmo raised, and even today he continues to raise the issue of the need for cultural transformation. But is there a blueprint as to what it means to do that cultural transformation? There is no blueprint because nobody has done it. Some people have tried things to a limited extent. Think about Tanzania. Nyerere's uh, Ujamaa concept basically based on historical African uh, ways of knowing and doing things. But you're trying to re-engage an alienated self in an atmosphere that's neo-colonial. It's never going to be an easy question, requiring easy answers. Even uh, when missionaries were busy implementing their ideas about recreating African being, it was not an easy process. It was a process that they could only achieve to the extent they did through violence. So how do you re-engage an alienated past? The Thomas Mapfumo saga continues, so stay tuned. We also want to hear your Afropop stories. Tell us how this program has changed your life. Send you on adventures. Who knows? I mean, brought you romance. Tell us all about it by writing to info at afropop.org. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. And PRI, 
public radio international affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Thanks to Mose Chikowero for the amazing commentary for this program and to Theodore Ko and Marta Ulveus at KCSB for recording our interview with Mose. Mose will soon publish the first of two books on his research, African Music, Power and Being, Colonial Zimbabwe. You can read the complete text of our interview with Mose and so much more at afropop.org. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. Thanks also to program advisors Paul Berliner and Tony Perman. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Banning Air and Sean Barlow. Banning has completed a book on the life and art of Thomas Mapfumo. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Michael Johnson. Banning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our producer for new media is Akornefa Achier. And I'm Georges Collinet. Public Radio International.